Now, let us turn in our Bibles, please, to the Gospel according to John, the 14th chapter. This is the passage that I read for our scripture tonight. I want you to know verse 23 and Jesus answered and said if a man love me he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings and the word which ye hear is not mine but the father's which sent There are several very simple and very obvious reasons why we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. This book, which you see on this pulpit, and it's the only thing we have, the center of this whole congregation is this open Bible on this pulpit. We have nothing else here. We have no images, we have no candles, we have no incense burners there's nothing in this room place for you to sit comfortable place to assemble place for the choir to lead us in our singing place for the preachers to sit but a, a pulpit a, a stand in the center of the entire assembly and on this stand is an open bible and everything in this body, everything in this assembly points to this book. It is the word of God. We read it as the word of God. The pastor takes a text from it and preaches and expounds upon that text as the word of God. And when you have been into this service and it is over and the benediction is passed, You've gone out having heard the word of God in this place. You can't enter into any service in this place without being confronted with this book. There it is. We read it. We preach from it. And this is the message that God wants us to have. Now, the book claims to be the word of God. It, it makes that claim for itself. And... If that claim isn't true, then let's throw the thing away. If the claims that are in this book are not true, that God is speaking and God is giving us direct statements, if it isn't true that God gave the Ten Commandments, let's throw them away. This thing's a forgery and a fraud. It's been imposed on humanity. And it's a wicked book if it isn't the Word of God. But in what it claims to be, it is a fraud and imposter. It is an awful, awful deception if that isn't what it claims to be. So you're immediately confronted with a tremendous condition. It either is in accordance with its claim or it isn't. There are many excellencies the Westminster Confession tells us why this manifests itself to be the Word of God. But the second great reason, and as far as I'm concerned, it is perhaps the most effective of all the reasons is that Jesus said it was God's word. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus said it was the word of God. And who is Jesus? He opened the grave. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He ascended into heaven and he lives at the right hand of God. Who is Jesus? He's coming again to raise the dead, to take the curse off nature, to set things right. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, he says, they're not mine, but the Father that sent me, he doeth the works. And when I give you this simple little statement, beloved, it is magnificent. Jesus Christ opened the tomb. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if this is what he did, and we believe that is what he did, then when he put his hand on that Old Testament scroll and said the scriptures can't be broken, nobody in heaven or hell, nobody on this earth can break this book and violate the truth of this scripture. Can't be done. When you extend these great questions in Luke 21, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and these great eschatological pictures when he says that he shall gather his elect from one end of the heavens to the other and they shall come in the clouds of heaven. And he tells us as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And when the, you get to the very midst of these magnificent openings and the vistas that he opens for us to see, he says, the heavens and the earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. So it's Jesus and his word. And beloved, you're in a great church tonight and you're listening to a, a preacher tonight that's spending his entire life and everything this church is doing is to the end that we may present to man the word of God. That's it. And it hath pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to say them that believe. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the way it is. Now I give you that as an introduction because we must have this background and basis for what we're doing. And this week across the nation in just how many papers I do not know but certainly the major and key newspapers of this country in centers where they reach thousands of Presbyterians. There are 3,300,000 United Presbyterians in this country. A committee of Presbyterian laymen paid for immense ads in the press. One of them appeared in our local Philadelphia paper, the Evening Bulletin. I'm going to ask tomorrow that everybody who saw one of these ads anywhere write me and tell me because I want to find out just what the total picture is so we'll know. But this ad represents an effort on the part of laymen 
the men who sit in the pews to reach the people of the church. They have found that they are in a difficult situation so far as their problem is concerned, their question is concerned. And so they decided that it would be all right in order to accomplish their purpose if they just told the whole world of their church troubles. They just opened up and let the whole world know what was going on and what their trouble was. And so they put the ad in the paper. On November the 12th, 1965, a little over a year ago, this group of laymen put out a letter, which I now have, in which they said they were going to work within the church. They didn't intend to go into the public press. They said so. Well, this is December 1966, and here they are out in the middle of the public press. And they discovered that in order to reach the people of the pews, they would have to go to the public press the pulpits and the ministry and the machinery and the organization of the church was so controlled and so in support of the new confession of 1967 that they were unable to reach the people. Now this ad is a magnificent ad and I want everybody to know that Dr. McIntyre endorses completely the position which this ad takes. In fact, what I like about the ad is the simplicity in which the laymen have told their story. And one thing that's especially gratifying is that when they start to tell their story, they point up the big issue involved. There are many issues involved, many questions in this confession, that they, the new confession, but they've sifted this thing and in their balancing and in their representation, they've come out with the big thing, the main thing, the preeminent thing, and presented it to the people. And I'm sure that God is going to use it in a mighty way. And I am going to dedicate everything I have this week on all these radio stations all over this nation. And tomorrow as I go on and open the question, I'm going to ask everybody to call every Presbyterian in town. I'm going to get more Presbyterian telephones ringing this week. And then let all the rest of the members of the Methodist and the Episcopalian and the Baptist and the Roman Catholic sit on the sidelines and listen to this thing. And imagine how God has built this and put this together and put us in a place where we're able now to come and give a great support to this testimony. These are laymen. They happen to be laymen who have some money. They're men of great means. They've made it in our free society. And now they're willing to spend some of it. The only trouble as I see it, it's too late to save the church. But it's not too late to save thousands and thousands of people. And so that's what they're seeking to do. Now let me read you from the ad. I have it here. A call to every United Presbyterian. Every one of them. They're, they really are in earnest. The proposed confession of 1967 was approved by the 1966 General Assembly confronts the United Presbyterian Church with a serious challenge. Oh, we've got a challenge. Listen, wait, we've been in problems. That's why they opened this thing up. All right, what is the challenge? 
What is, what are they getting at? If this confession is ratified by two-thirds of all the Presbyterians and approved by the next General Assembly in May 1967, our church may well have undergone the most radical and revolutionary change in its entire history. And then they speak briefly of the fact that they've organized, that this matter's gone through the assembly. Very few Presbyterians have read the Confession of 1967. Nobody's read the thing. A surprising number of laymen are not even aware that such radical and revolutionary changes in the confessional position of the United Presbyterian Church are being proposed. People are so asleep and so indifferent, so unconcerned that they don't even know what's happening to their church. They don't even know what's going on in the church as it relates to their confessional position. Now, beloved, let's understand what we mean by a confessional position. Jesus Christ said, if you confess me before man. The apostle said, we believe, therefore we, we speak. We declare what we believe. And the confession of the church is a declaration of what we believe. That's all. Credo, I believe. And we in the Presbyterian family have accepted and established the Westminster Confession. 300 years ago, the Westminster divines were assembled in England and they drafted the most detailed and the most complete confessional statement ever adopted by a Christian group. It is magnificent. Minister Confession, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism. And we are committed to this confession. And when I stand in this pulpit, I am under solemn vows before God that I believe this is the first ordination vow. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the word of God? the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Here's the Bible. It's God's word. It's infallible. It's the rule for our faith. What it teaches, we believe. What it commands, we do. Our faith and practice. My, how beautiful it is. And then the second, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith? as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. This book has a great, marvelous, revealed system, beautiful, woven together, as God has revealed himself and our sin and his work of creation, his marvelous ministry of redemption. It's a system of doctrine. The answer is yes. Now, to show you how revolutionary this is, as these elders are saying, these laymen are saying, the new confession carries with it a changing of the ordination vows. They have now eliminated the vow which says that the minister subscribes to the Bible 
is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. That vow is gone. The second vow dealing with the system of doctrine, that too is gone. The two major things, the commitment of the church and the ministry and the elders and the leaders to the infallible Bible, it's gone. And they have a mealy mouth sort of a statement that they put up here, which doesn't in any way commit anybody to this book as the Word of God. The same thing with the second great ordination vow about the system of doctrine. It's gone. They've laid it aside. Now, if that isn't revolution, that isn't changing the commitment. Regardless of what the confession may say, they haven't tied you down to anything so far as this great book is concerned or this system of doctrine is concerned. Now let's read a little further. As often happens with the writing, with the written efforts of committees, the resultant product is so full of compromises, concessions, contradictions, and obscure sentences that it promotes serious disagreements in the way it is interpreted and applied. Far more serious, however, is the radical nature of some of the proposals that shatter the very foundations of our faith. Think of putting that in a big public ad. The whole world to read, that we laymen, we elders, we people who sit in the pews, Oh, it's so serious. They're going to shatter. They're going to they're gonna tear to pieces the very foundations of our faith in this thing. Imagine a statement like that. Immense ads all over the country. Surely everybody ought to say, well, if they're going to destroy the faith, if they're going to wreck the foundations of the faith, if they're going to do this to us, let's wake up and find out what it's about. My, it's a, it's a brilliantly written ad. Yes, sure no preacher wrote this. It must have been some layman put it together. So beautifully phrased, you can understand it. Let us illustrate with a few of the more radical changes found in the Confession of 1967. Space does not permit permitting of the entire sections referred to, but you can get the full context by reading the proposed book of Confession. Is the Bible words of men or the infallible word of God? Very first thing, they just start writing with the Bible. Here's where they come, right here. These men open up with a proper approach and the proper introduction is to the real issue. Did you realize that the Bible will no longer be considered as the infallible and inspired word of God? Did you realize? Did you realize? Did you realize that the Bible will no longer be considered the inspired word of God. Did you realize? Did you realize? Did you realize that the Bible, this book, this thing we read, this thing we have in our homes, this thing we revere, this thing that we have the most precious memories about, 
will no longer be considered the infallible word of God. That's what these laymen are asking you. Now listen. How far the authors would go in humanizing the Bible. Humanizing it. A man-made book. Can be realized in this excerpt from the New Confession. Quote, The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men. Conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times in which they were written, they reflect views of life, history, and the cosmos which were then current. The church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding, end of quote. The Westminster Confession, which is part of our church's constitution, states the truth that has guided us for 20 centuries, quote, the authority of the Holy Scriptures, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received, because it is the word of God. End of quote. Let me just read that to you again. I love it. That's in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession. Just look at it. The authority of the Holy Scriptures. Here's this book. What authority does it have when it speaks? For which it ought to be believed. We ought to believe the things that are in this book. And obeyed. We ought to obey the things that are in this book. Dependeth not upon the testimony of any man. Line them up, all the men in the world, the brilliant men, the learned men, the wise men, line them up. This book doesn't depend upon anything that any man may say about it. Or church. No, the authority of this book doesn't depend upon anything that the church shall say about it. It doesn't depend upon anything that this pulpit shall say about it. It doesn't depend upon anything that any organized body of worshipers anywhere in this world shall ever say about this book. But wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. God Almighty, the creator of the universe. God Almighty, he's the author of this book. And he is truth itself. And if that one who is the truth speaks to us through the scriptures, that's all you need. That's all you need to have. That settles it. That gives you the authority. 
that gives you every basis and every foundation that you could possibly ask for. Therefore, it ought to be received because it is the Word of God. Why? Does that do anything to you? Well, it does everything to me because the Spirit of God speaks right through this book and I believe it because it's the Word of God. And you do too. Now let's look at the other, the new statement. The Scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men. Now do you know how that thing ought to read? It ought to read like this. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are therefore the word of God. They say the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of man. Well, what happened to the Spirit? What in the world happened to the Spirit? <laughs> the Spirit of God gave the scriptures and when he gave them to us, they turned out to be the words of man. What it ought to say is the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, are nevertheless the, are therefore the words of God. Now there's your difference. That's the big issue. That is the issue. There is no other issue. The whole new confession was drafted and planned and implemented so the church could be taken away from the Bible as the word of God. Whole thing is built upon an attack on the Bible, a removal of the Bible, a downgrading of the Bible, a getting away from the infallibility and the authority that that infallibility gives in the Bible. You know what I've called this book? I told you I've written this book. There are 19 chapters in it. And I've written it now, and we're going to get through the press just as quickly as we can. You know what I call it? the death of a church. You know how to kill a church? Take the Bible away. It'll die. <laughs> you know how to build a church? Bring the Bible in preach it. Spirit of God will wake up people, make them alive. We'll have new creatures. We'll have a Christian church. You can't have a Christian church without an infallible Bible. Can't do it. It's impossible. But with a Bible that's inspired of God and infallible, you can preach it, and the preaching of this word will be used by the Spirit of God to save your soul and deliver you from hell and to ransom you from death. And this message will take you into the presence of Jesus and you'll have everlasting life. Now let me read you a little further. I come to a section, beloved, when I read it, the tears came to my eyes and I just couldn't, I couldn't re re restrain my, my heart. I want you to listen to it. These dear laymen, the Bible contains over 3,000 references to the Word of God. As put in the mouths of the prophets, Christ himself accepted the revelations of the prophets as the true word of God and Christ being divine could not have made a mistake. 
Isn't that precious? Christ, being divine, could not have made a mistake. Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. These dear ladies, God bless them. What's happened to their preachers? What's happened to their preachers? And they tell the whole world, the layman say, My, how beautiful it is. Christ being divine could not have made a mistake. No, beloved, he didn't make a mistake. He was without sin. No, beloved, he didn't make a mistake. The words I speak, he says, are spirit, they are life. He didn't make a mistake. He said the scriptures cannot be broken. It is they that testify of me. He didn't make a mistake. After he was raised from the dead, he met with his disciples. He said, all things written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and the prophets concerning me must be fulfilled. Oh, fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the scriptures have spoken. And beginning in Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Himself. Jesus being divine could not have made a mistake. And beloved, he didn't make a mistake when he shed his blood for your sins. He didn't make a mistake when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And all you young people, be finished with this tomfoolery that some of you are getting mixed in today. Get back to this Bible. Get back to the divine Christ who doesn't make mistakes. Oh, you people today, don't you think for one minute that any group of men or any a combination of scientists or anybody else knows more than the lamb who was raised from the dead. Couldn't make a mistake. You know, if you just read the newspapers, folks, you get some of the most interesting things. Last week they had some scientific convention somewhere. The New York Times was reporting it. And some well-known, respected science. They respect each other in their own circles, you know. And uh, uh, one of these well-known scientists uh, came along and He's come out with some sort of a theory that this whole world was put together in a hurry. He's got a new idea. And uh, he's got the idea that all these ideas that has been going on for all this terrible time and everything else like this, but now he thinks the combinations of gases and other things he explained it, it brought about a very rapid uh, consolidation which produced all this in a very hurry. And actually, we're not so very old after all. And I read that thing in the New York Times. I said, why didn't they censor that thing out? They shouldn't have permitted anything like that to get in the papers. But there it is. Beloved, we don't know anything. Where are the lies? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Let them have their dialogues if they want to. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Oh, it hath pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
when these dear laymen come along with this ad, then I read it. I'll never get over it. God bless them. These dear men spending their money and Christ being divine could not make a mistake. Are you willing to give up your belief in the Bible as the true and infallible word of God? Think of putting that in the newspaper for the whole world. Telling the Presbyterians in the churches, three million of them, Oh, lady, lady, wait a minute, read my ad. I can't get to you through the pulpit. I can't get to you through the General Assembly. I can't get through you to the Presbytery. I can't get through you. We'll have to go out to the free press where we can pay in a free country. And we'll ask you the question, are you willing? Are you willing? To give up your faith in a Bible that is inspired. I'm not willing. I'm not willing to do it. Well, my. Oh, yes, there's one other thing I must tell you about this one. <clears throat> they say here in this quotation they make here. The church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding. Isn't that nice? You dear people don't understand the scriptures. When you read them, it's a shame. They're over your heads. Too many things have happened in our generation so that you can intelligently study them. And so now we have an obligation the church has. The church is going to do it. The church is going to bring in all these explanations. Moses didn't write anything, you know. We've just been misled by that story. And David didn't write his psalms. And, of course, Daniel, my goodness, Daniel could never have made the predictions he made, so his book had to be written at least 300 years after he was dead. We've got to get into all this historical and all this critical understanding. The church has an obligation to do that. And so the church will be the prever the purveyor. It will be the instrument to take away from you people who sit in the pews your faith in Moses and what Moses said. And I want to say to some of you young people in this church who are getting some strange ideas in your craniums, I want you to get them out. And I want you to get back to this great idea that it's the revelation which we honor. It's the preaching of the blood which honors this book. And let's be done with all this silly notion that somehow or other we can have an intellectualism that uh, will appeal to these liberals. Bless your soul, there's only one thing that will save any liberal. It's the blood of Christ, and he won't be interested in it until he realizes he's a sinner. And he has to be convicted of sin. And you'll never save anybody by some kind of intellectualism. You will save them by defending the faith and presenting the truth of the gospel in your message and testimony. That'll bring them to Christ. Nothing else will. Criticism of the Bible. Now that's all I'm going to give you. My time is gone. But you know what they do? They go on here, these dear, these dear laymen. 
And they take the whole section of the confession and they say now they're getting into social, political, economic issues. And that's where the whole thing goes, the whole new confession. Throws the Bible aside, the church comes up now, the church begins to speak, the church has a message for our day, the church has a program to meet the actions of the day. And the first thing we've got, civil rights. Civil rights, here's the whole basis for it. The second thing they have, I believe, is poverty. They're anti-poverty. The third thing they have is reconciliation to the communist world. The fourth thing they have is sex. S-E-X. Sex. And you read it, the paragraph on sex, it's so phrased with its double talk and its duplicity that young people who want to accept the new morality and the so-called situation ethics and live together before they're married can find their justification in the new creed. It's there. Young people, the Lord has commanded you to keep yourself clean and pure. And you young girls keep yourselves virgins and present yourself to the man of your love as a clean woman and have a happy, pure, lovely home. The filth of this new morality, the filth of this situation ethic, the filth of bringing this into the church. The church is here to tell you on the authority of the word of God that no whoremonger, no adulterer, no unclean person shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you're washed. But you're sanctified. But you're cleansed by the spirit of God. You take the word of God out of the church and it's going to be filthy. It'll become that. Isn't it, isn't it marvelous that these elders, these men spent all this money? I don't know how much they spent, but they spent thousands and thousands of dollars. I'm going to try to calculate it. We'll figure it up. And I'll be, but these men spent thousands of dollars. They had to go out to the public press. They had to go to the world to tell their story. And what's nice about it, when they told their story, they said that Christ being divine could not have made a mistake. My sad. That's the testimony. That's the gospel. Christ being divine, the Son of God, he couldn't make a mistake. And he didn't. He didn't. Was this word of his, was he a man of his day? Were his statements in the Bible conditioned by the thought forms of the day in which he lived? He said, I am the way. He's always been the way. I am the truth. He's always been the truth. I am the life. He's always been the life. And he said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And that's the only way anybody will ever get to heaven is by Jesus. I don't want to speak about this, of course, but you and I have been standing for these things in this church. And that's why we're here. That's why we're Bible Presbyterian. Talk about God leading us. Talk about God using this church. Talk about it in those days back there years ago when we were 
making these great stands. Somebody led us to put the word Bible in front of the word Presbyterian and to go ahead. And then when the elders and the laymen come out 30 years later for the big ad, the first issue is the Bible. Are we going to give up the Bible? Are we going to lay aside its inspiration? Well, beloved, if you're going to go to a church where they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, stay home. If you're going to go to a church where they give you the message of the church and not the message of the Word of God, get out of that place. Go find a group of people somewhere meeting in a hall or a barn or some sort of a place that are about this word, and there's somebody there that's just simply saying, this is the message from heaven, let's believe it and be saved, and let God save our children and our families, and let's teach them this blessed message. And beloved, they've gone into the caves, they've gone into the hills, they've gone into the dungeons, they've gone everywhere with this blessed book. And out there in India tonight, in Kerala, there's 80,000 to 100,000 of the poorest people on this earth. And they took this book and they left the ecumenical movement, which has in it all this inclusivism and all this filth and all this modernism. And there they are sitting under the stars and under the moon, under the palm trees, worshiping Jesus. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Are you in it? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? And if you do, beloved, on this New Year's Steve. On this New Year's night in this great church, and so many of you have come, I want to call you to come to Christ and rededicate yourself to Him. I want to call you to wake up and get in this great struggle because in the preservation of the witness of the church to the Word of God, there is with it the preservation of the liberty you enjoy in this country. You take the Bible out of this country and you lose your liberty. They're related. And all oh, you people who don't understand, May God give you understanding. May God give you understanding. Let us pray. <clears throat> our God, we thank thee for this great act. And we thank thee that our great papers in this country would publish such a thing as this. A call to every united Presbyterian. Oh, we thank thee that these men said, Christ being divine could not have made a mistake. Lord, he knows it all. He is before all things. By him all things are consist. consist. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we are complete in him. And we thank thee to live as Christ, to die as gain. And the life which we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of Man, the Son of God, who gave himself for us. God bless the message. For Christ's sake, amen. Young lady, did you understand my message tonight? Did you understand it? Did you understand it? That's all I wanted to hear you say. If you didn't, I was going to preach it over did you folks understand my sermon tonight?
You think you can tell me the main point of this act? You think so? I'm kind of afraid to say yes for fear I might ask them something. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you anything. You, you honestly understand what I read in this app? Do you think you understand? That's right. I won't ask the big folks. They know already. I'm sure they do. But beloved, you'll live 67, 68 in our generational past. And in all of the history of the church, 1967 is going to go down as the years when the great Presbyterian church laid aside the Bible, God's Word. No wonder this crowd doesn't want to read it in school. That's your problem. They don't believe the thing. And no wonder this crowd wants us to teach it now in the universities as literature so they can attack it in the literature classes with your tax money. That's your problem. All right, now let's stand, all of us, and sing this great closing hymn together. <clears throat> 265, I Need Jesus. Oh, you laymen, go all over the country. Tell everybody, Christ being divine could not have made a mistake. Magnificent. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.